0: Thank you so much, Daniel. I appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. I do have to say that I'm really, really thrilled to be here. Uh, my wife, Ingelil, say hi to everybody, Ingelil, She's over there. We've come, and uh, we kind of unashamedly, we love uh, your pastor, Daniel, and his wife, Leah, and their whole family. Uh, and it's such a great thing for me. I mean, I've been looking forward to this day, though I didn't know what day it would be, But I I had an idea that when Daniel came down here to serve this community, that I I might be preaching at the church that he pastored sometime, and I was looking forward to it already. And if I could say, I hope I'm not being too bold in saying that, I hope this isn't the last time. I hope I can come again, and just it's wonderful to be connected to what this work God is doing here among you all. And um, it's a pleasure for me to bring you something from God's Word. I, I really... Look, I could talk your ear off about, I think, the work and the ministry that God has given me to do. But if you're curious, come and ask me afterwards. I love Again, I'll talk your ear off about it. My People who know me might roll their eyes, but I, I love what God allows me to do. And uh, I love the, the ministry of this Bible commentary and all its different facets that I have. But another part of what I love to do is just come and bring God's word to people. So, Let's give our attention now to the Word of God. And if you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. What we're going to do is we're going to l- take a look at a Christmas message from an unusual Christmas verse, something that maybe you have not associated with Christmas before, but I think there's a lot in here for us to see and to connect with this wonderful thing of Christmas. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Father in heaven, I want to just stand uh, before you and before these precious people and simply thank you, Lord. Thank you uh, for your work that you're doing here in Calvary Chapel, Palos Verdes. I want to thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in and through Daniel and Leah Hendrickson. I want to thank you, Lord, for our friendship, for our real camaraderie in your work. And Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity to share something from your word with these precious people. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to me, through me, and that you would bring something of blessing and edification to your people. Lord, perhaps to those among us here who uh, would want to become among your people today. Do it, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here we go. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, this is Christmas time when you look at Christmas throughout the Bible. There are many sort of traditional, well-known Christmas passages or Christmas verses, and they're well-known for a good reason. They powerfully, eloquently speak of the message of Christmas and the events of Christmas and the events of what we call the advent, the coming, the appearing of Jesus Christ in what we would call his first advent. We do believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, that there will be a second advent, but, but we learn things and we prepare ourselves for his second coming, his second advent, by being aware of his first advent and learning about that. So there's familiar passages. You could go to Luke chapter 2, start at verse 1. If the pastor begins his message like this, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, you're getting ready for a Christmas sermon, aren't you? If the pastor comes and preaches to you from Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel." Might be ready for a Christmas sermon right there. Or or go forward another couple chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Many of you will recognize this one. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, well-known for good reason, well-known Christmas passages. And we love these. We, We love these because they associate, they draw our mind, our attention, they teach us something about that event that we call the incarnation. Now, incarnation is a theological word. It's not the kind of word that we just use normally in our everyday conversation but it doesn't mean that it's a word to ignore or avoid, it's just a word to learn about. The incarnation, theologically speaking, speaks of when God added humanity to his deity and came among us as a man. It's very important to understand that but because what we understand in the incarnation is that God did not take anything away from himself. Think of it this way. The incarnation was not subtraction. It was addition. God didn't subtract anything. He added humanity to his deity. And he came first, obviously conceived in the womb of Mary, then born in Bethlehem and living his life for 33 years among human beings on earth until it culminated in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. Now, that event That coming of Jesus, the first advent, the incarnation, that is one of the greatest things that has ever happened in the history of the universe. Now, I know there's always seems to be some people, I I don't know what it is, they want to lessen our joy around Christmas. Just kind of let you, Christmas isn't all that you thought it was and isn't all that it should be, whatever. I, I don't understand that completely, why there's some people who seem dedicated to taking Christmas down a few notches. Why uh, they wanna explain to us what we do around this time of year isn't so wonderful. But despite those folks, Christmas stands as an amazing event. And because it's so amazing, you could say that Christmas is in fact written all over the Bible. It's not just in the familiar and beloved Christmas passages. That's why I'm trying to say to you, we're gonna see Christmas right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse nine. That there's only 30 words in this verse. If I counted right, it's plus or minus one. 30 words in this verse, but I believe that this verse teaches us about the deity of Jesus. It teaches us about the humanity of Jesus. It teaches us about the manner of the earthly life of Jesus. It teaches us about the truth of what Jesus did for us in his life and in his death. This verse, in only 30 words, it teaches us about our glorious destiny. This verse teaches us about God's motive in doing all of this, why it was that Jesus came to us at all. And it even teaches us how to receive what God came to do for us at Christmas. So, There's a lot in these 30 words. Let's take a look at it now. I want to read it to you one more time, and then let's take it apart, sort of piece by piece. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Did somebody check my count on that? Is that, in fact, 30 words? I think it is. Okay, good. I knew several of you would be counting. They'd be checking up on that. It is 30 words. In this brief verse, in these 30 words, I I see a Christmas tree full of gifts. So I'm going to make six points from these. That's averaging five words per point throughout this thing. Don't worry, I'll move through them fairly quickly, but I tell you six so that you know, Where where I'm at here, you know just where we're progressing. When a pastor gets up to point four or five, you wonder how long he's gonna go. You know this ahead of time. Six points here, and I'm just gonna click them off quickly for you, and then we'll take a look at them piece by piece. Number one, we're gonna look at the riches of Jesus. Number two, the poverty of Jesus. Number three, the manner of Jesus's poverty. Number four, the reason for his poverty. Number five, the result of his poverty. And then number six, the motive of his poverty. Let's take a look at it first now. The riches of Jesus, it says right here in chapter 8, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians, though he was rich. Now, when was Jesus rich? Rich. You could make a small argument that Jesus was rich right after the visit of the wise men. What did the wise men bring Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And and the problem is we don't know how much of those things that he brought. You know, it, it might have been relatively small amounts. It might have been healthy amounts. We don't know. So can you see, that's probably not what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says that Jesus was, though he was rich, he's probably not talking about the infant Jesus with the gifts of the wise men. So what is he talking about? Do you realize that Paul here is teaching us something amazing about the deity of Jesus Christ? He's saying that Jesus existed before he was conceived in Mary's womb, before he was born in Bethlehem. And his existence before that was a rich existence. Where was Jesus before Bethlehem? He was in heaven. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, existed before he was conceived, before he added humanity to his deity and was conceived in Mary's womb. And God in heaven... I'm almost hesitant to say these words because when I say them, it sounds in my ear very trite to say this. But God in heaven is rich. Is he not? I mean, what does God lack in heaven? God has everything. Think of what Jesus had in heaven before he came to earth. He was rich in possessions. How much does God own? Um, Everything. You know, we think that we own things, and in some sense we do. I mean, there's a sense of ownership that the Bible talks about. But but really, if you want to get right down to it, everything we own, we own as stewards or managers of what God owns. God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns it. He's rich in possessions. But Jesus was not only rich in possessions, he was also rich in honor, Uh, worshiped by the highest angelic beings constantly. He was rich in power in heaven, because in heaven, God's power is completely unopposed in every way conceivable. Jesus was rich in love in heaven. The the love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit absolutely uninterrupted, no hindrance or obstacle whatsoever. And you could say, Jesus was rich in happiness in heaven. I mean, no, there is no stress or anxiety in heaven, not one bit. To say that Jesus was rich in heaven before he came to earth, that's true, but it seems like such a a inadequate way to explain the glory of God. Let me read you something that Charles Spurgeon said about this, I think he was right. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher of Victorian England. And Spurgeon said this, he said, Jesus was more than rich, he was more than great, he was God with all that word can possibly mean. So, though he was rich, look at the second point now, he became poor. Jesus lived his earthly life as a poor man. Now, We need to be careful that we don't exaggerate the poverty of Jesus, because I think it's possible to do it. Jesus didn't live in rags with no proper clothing. Uh, Jesus didn't go hungry because he couldn't get food. We could potentially exaggerate the poverty of Jesus, and we should not do that. He was not a destitute beggar. We never have this picture of Jesus going without food or clothing because of poverty. We we never see Jesus in the picture of like some other destitute beggars we see in the Bible. Yet, Jesus could say of himself, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Clearly, Jesus said, when I walk this earth, it will not be as a man who has great possessions. I am going to live a very simple, stripped-down life. I, I, I won't be deprived of necessities, but I will deprive myself many luxuries, many comforts that other people would have. And well, Of course, we see this just looking at the Christmas story. Do, do you, you, of course, you know what a nativity scene is. You probably have one. You probably have several at our house. We have several at our house. We have the little Fisher-Price nativity with the little thing. Our grandchildren love that. This year, I took away the inflatable snow globe that would go in front of our house, and I got an inflatable nativity, and my wife is very pleased by that. It looks great. If you were to see it at our home in Santa Barbara, you'd see it, l- it looks good. But if you imagine that nativity scene, what do you see? Look at the room that he was born in. Look at the bed that he was laid upon. Look at the mattress that was underneath him. Look at the spectators who gave him honor. All of that speaks not of wealth and affluence. It speaks of somebody who is relatively poor and simple. Now, it it goes without saying that if I was God or if you were God, we wouldn't have done it this way. Jesus had the potential to live his life as the richest person who ever walked the earth. But by deliberate choice, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I will live as a relatively poor person. Who would ever be poor if they could be rich without effort? And that was Jesus. It's kind of like, Having the winning lottery ticket in your hand and saying, nah, I'm not going to cash it in. If I had it in my hand, I'd cash it in. I think most of us would. Jesus said, no, I'm going to live in a simple poverty. Now, this was true of more than just the birth of Jesus. All throughout his life, He grew up as the son of a humble carpenter. He had no fancy clothes, no home of his own. He wasn't a beggar, but at least in part during the years of his three-year earthly ministry, at least in part, there were times when Jesus was supported by a a group of women who just came around and helped supply for their needs. Jesus never even owned his own grave. His own tomb. Even that was borrowed. Now the good news is he only had to borrow it for a few days. But nevertheless, it was borrowed. Now, contrast the riches of Jesus in heaven with the poverty of Jesus on earth. In heaven, he's rich in possessions. On earth, he's poor in possessions. In heaven... He's rich in honor. Can anybody tell me that Jesus, as he walked this earth, was honored as he should have been? No. In heaven, Jesus was rich in power. On earth, he was, and I need to be careful here. There's some theological landmines that I could step on. But, but at least in appearance, Jesus was poor in power in that he accepted the limitations of humanity. In other words, in heaven, Jesus never had to sleep. The Bible tells us he who keeps Israel never slumbers or sleeps. He who sits in the heavens, he, he never sleeps and we're grateful for that, are we not? But on earth, Jesus became tired. He willingly accepted that limitation. So in a relative sense, He became poor in power. In a relative sense, Jesus became poor in love on earth. Not that he loved any less. No, never. That could never be. But he was loved less on earth than in heaven. And you could say, and again, I want to be careful here. You could say that Jesus became poor in happiness on earth. I'm not trying to say that Jesus walked around as a miserable man. I don't believe that. But the Bible does use these kind of phrases regarding Jesus, that he was the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And those are things that you would not say about Jesus in heaven before he came to earth. And when you contrast the earthly poverty of Jesus, that's what it says in the verse, he became poor. When you, tra- when you contrast that with his life in heaven before coming to earth, were even more amazed. Poverty always feels worse when someone has been rich in the past. You know, you could almost say that some of the greatest sadness and suffering among the poor is found among those who were once comfortable in life and now they're poor. But people who grow up in a state of poverty. I'm not saying it's better for them, but at least they hadn't known it different earlier. But but there's almost this haunting sadness in the life of people who once had a more comfortable existence. Now they're quite poor. You can almost see it in their eyes. They say, you know, I've known better days than this. It didn't always used to be like this for me. And could not Jesus himself have said that when he walked this earth? Could not he have said, I've known better days than this. It wasn't always like this for me. So I believe this is very powerful. Though he was rich, he became poor. But notice here the manner of his poverty. I just read those words to you. It says there, he became poor just as Jesus added humanity to his deity but never really lost his deity because if you can stop being God, you were never really God to begin with. So you could say that Jesus never really lost his riches. He just decided, I'm not going to access them. I'm not going to draw upon them. I'm going to live as a simple man among men. Now, please notice in our verse, it does not say that Jesus was made poor. It says he became poor. And you might say, well, what's the difference between the two? I would say the difference is, is that when it says he became poor, it indicates that it was completely voluntary on the part of Jesus. No one made him poor. He chose it. He chose to become poor. And when Jesus chose this, I mean, I believe that he could have chosen differently at any moment. Don't you think at any moment along his existence, Jesus could have said, "Um, forget it. Uh, I'm done with this. I'm going to live the next year as a very wealthy person. Uh, I'm going to go take a vacation. And on that vacation, wow, I'm going to live it up. No, but he didn't do that. He became poor as a point of choice, and that's how he lived. All right, we're already through three points. Here's the fourth one. The reason for his poverty. It's right here. Look at it in the verse. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Yet for your sake he became poor. That tells us the reason why he did it. It was for your sake. It it wasn't for himself. In other words, Jesus's reason for becoming poor was not something like this. Well, wouldn't it be fun to live as the other half lives? why not take some time off and live as a common man? Now, there are people who do that. You know, let's go and I'll go slumming among the unfortunate or something like that. Now, there's people who do that, but that wasn't the case for Jesus. There was no reason um, for self-satisfaction why they did it. He said, no, I'm going to do it for your sake, for you. Yet for your sake, that's what Jesus gives to us all at Christmas. Jesus accepted a humble life of relative poverty when he had the power to live as the wealthiest man ever, why did he do it? He did it for your sake. Now, you might say, okay, well, great. What, what benefit does it do for me? If, if some very wealthy, influential person in the world, if a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos or a Elon Musk, if they say, oh, okay, I'm going to become poor. Okay, great. What does it do for me? Well, I, I'll tell you, the poverty of Jesus benefits us in so many ways. Number one, it shows us the giving heart of God. <laughs> Matter of fact, I should have told you this more at the beginning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul isn't trying to tell the Christmas story. He's trying to teach Christians how to give. Go, Go home and read it at your leisure. Just read through those chapters. Paul's real point in those chapters is trying to teach the Corinthian Christians how to be generous, how to be givers, which is an important thing in the Christian life. And as he's explaining to Christians the reason and kind of the mentality, we, we, there are specific reasons and, and, and thought processes behind a Christian's generosity. One of them is, look, I want to be like my Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a giving Savior. And that's one of the things we receive. We receive a great example, a great uh, pattern showing us the giving heart of God. The, the chosen poverty of Jesus also shows us the relative importance of material things. Look, if material things were absolutely essential, important for life and for, uh, for a happy life, Jesus would have had them. But he shows us again the relative importance of material things. The chosen poverty of Jesus makes him open and accessible to everybody. You know, I I rattled off three names of people who are well-known in our world today to be very wealthy. uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos. And, you know, these are just kind of people, for all I know, there's more wealthy people in the world than them, but these are just kind of well-known, proverbial people, if you will, in our present day for being very wealthy. I know that if I were to ever meet one of those men personally, I would be very intimidated. There would be just something about, wow, you know, this is intimidating to meet this person. Jesus didn't want any hindrance in the way of that when he met people. The chosen poverty of Jesus fulfilled the heart and will and plan of God. It made our salvation possible. Now I'll give you one other thing that it gives to us. The chosen poverty of Jesus gave other people the privilege of giving to him. I mentioned very briefly those women that kind of supported, Jesus, you have a feel that's kind of like a, a you know meal plan kind of thing that they went around and they provided for the disciples. Can you imagine how special they felt to to provide meals for the Messiah and his disciples? And if Jesus would have just said, "Hey, no, I'm good. I'll just uh, you know keep multiplying loaves and fishes. We're fine. If Jesus would have said something like that, These women would have been, in a sense, robbed of their great joy in giving unto Jesus. And that's another reason why he did it. Friends, these are amazing words. Look at those words again in verse 9. For your sake. That means it in the most personal sense possible. Look, I, I don't recommend to people that when they write in the Bible, they cross out words. But maybe you could just draw a little arrow from that word to the margin. And in the margin, write your name. Write, for David's sake, if I were to write my name in the text. It's that personal. He did it for your sake. Now, the the fifth point, look at the result of the poverty of Jesus that you by his poverty might become rich. Because of Jesus's poverty and all that's connected to it, we can become rich. You can say that we have a share in the eternal heavenly wealth of Jesus because he came and had a share in our poverty. There's a sense In that as low as Jesus went, that's as high, how high we will go united with him. And so we become rich through the poverty of Jesus. We receive the riches of Jesus Christ. Jesus is rich in possessions. So are we. You know, one of the greatest possessions we have as Christians. Contentment. What a beautiful, powerful gift that is for those who follow after Jesus Christ. Because, you know, some of the wealthiest people who live in this world do not have that gift of contentment. Some of them would give almost anything they could materially. That's what they do over and over again, just in a search for this. But isn't this one of the glorious gifts that we have in Jesus Christ? That is riches from above for us to have true contentment in Jesus Christ. As Jesus was rich in honor, so we have riches. I don't know if there's any honor greater than being a son or a daughter adopted into God's family. As Jesus was rich in power, so are we. We can come to God and ask him to move in prayer as sons and daughters of God. As Jesus was rich in love, so we are rich. We have the love of God poured out into our hearts And as Jesus was rich in happiness, so are we. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ, we can have the peace that passes all understanding. And that's happiness. So let me conclude now with my sixth point. Look at the motive of his poverty. The motive, it's in the first line. Maybe you can notice I kind of skipped over the very first few words. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did Jesus do this? What was the motive? The motive was grace. Now, do, do you know what grace means as far as giving? Grace means that the motive for giving is in the giver. It's not in the receiver in any way. Classically, and I I don't know if there's children listening here, so I'll say, classically, when people think of Santa Claus, they think of Santa Claus as, you know, rewarding, naughty and nice. Uh, Rewarding the nice, punishing the naughty. That is not giving of grace. Santa Claus type giving is giving that is motivated by the recipient. I've earned what I get from the legend of Santa Claus. Either I earn something nice, or if I'm naughty, I earn that lump of coal, but I earned it. What I get is determined on who I am, what I bring to the table. That's not grace. Grace is the giving of Jesus, where the motive for his giving is all in him. Why does he give? Because he wants to give. That's the motive for giving. Now, this is the motive of God's giving. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to promise to be worthy of it. You just have to receive his gift of grace. Let me put it to you this way. If you receive his gift of grace, you will be made rich because he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 tells us? It's all right there. It really is that simple. Now, given it being that simple, isn't it strange to see that there are believers, there are Christians who experience their Christian life in what we would call poverty. When Jesus went to such great extent to give them his riches, they live in poverty. Now, when I say they live in poverty, I'm not talking about the good kind of poverty of spirit that Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes. That's a good thing. I'm talking about a bad kind of spiritual poverty where God has resources available for us, but we don't access those resources because we just we lack faith. We don't receive them. We're too proud, whatever it is we don't receive what God has to give for us. Perhaps those people have kind of the attitude of what we would call, on a material level, the attitude of the self-made man. In other words, I don't want charity from nobody. Whatever I have, I want to know I earned it. Now, if that's you in your business, I've got some admiration for you. If that's you in your relationship with God, you're in a lot of trouble. Because all we can earn before God, all we can earn is our own ruin and judgment. But the free gift of God to us in Jesus Christ is His riches in exchange for our poverty. Therefore, I would tell you this morning, that there are wonderful presents for you under God's tree. Imagine you don't want to open them. You you say, well, look, I, I don't need those. I don't need anybody's charity. I'll tell you just straightforwardly. You would be a fool to let the riches of Jesus Christ pass you by because you were too proud to receive them. So let me just say it simply and straightforwardly. We have this verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let me give one final thought. And this is a final thought. It's not a point seven. It's very short. Consider Jesus now. He has ascended to heaven. Did he not do that some 40 days after his resurrection? Jesus is not poor any longer. He's back in heaven's glory with all that that entails. His humanity was not temporary. When he added humanity to his deity, that was for all the rest of eternity. But his poverty was temporary. He's back in heaven. He is once again in heaven's glory in every dimension. So... If Jesus did everything that we spoke about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, if he did all this for you when he was poor, how much more will he do for you now, now that he is rich? This is the greatness of our Savior. I, I pray that we can all receive it and live in some of these great riches that Jesus Christ came to give us. Let me pray just to that effect right now. Father, we're blown away by this simple principle Of all that Jesus was, all that he came to do, all that he in fact did for us. We're so blessed by the simple truth that though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sake. That we would become rich in him. Lord, I just pray that this would be real in every life here. And that we would all simply come to Jesus to receive what he has to give to us. And that we would realize that it was at great cost that he provides us for us. And we really can't put our love and our trust in a God who loves us so deeply. We worship you, we surrender unto you, we acknowledge you, and we just say, Lord, we could never save ourselves, but we're grateful that you did it for us in Jesus Christ. Help us to receive it and walk in it now. In Jesus' name, amen.